We've been in this series called More Than a Miracle. It's the Gospel of John, where we've been looking at the different miracles or the signs, as John calls them. Today, we're closing out this series with sign number seven. It's an incredible miracle that today, Pastor Ian is going to bring you a word that I know God has laid upon his heart. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to treat him with love. I want you to treat him the same way you treat me. I want you to put your hands together and welcome your family life pastor, Ian O'Brien, to the stage as he brings the word. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Woo! Yeah! Hey, um, you can sit down. Thank you. So um, it is a it's a huge honor for me every time I get to um, stand on this stage and and share God's word with with each of you. It's an extra special honor today because today I get to to preach the word on the day that we're going to be honoring and appreciating Pastor Mark and Kim at the end of service. So um, if you don't like my preaching, just stick around for that part, okay? Please. Thank you. Um, but with that said, uh, again, uh, that's not something that I just say. It's very true. Um, and it's, it's a huge honor that Pastor Mark trusts me to stand here and, and preach to all of you wonderful people. And uh, it's, it's also an honor to be able to officially close out this More Than a Miracle series with uh, the seventh sign in the book of John, John chapter 11. It's a, it's a passage that Pastor Mark preached from uh, a few months ago from in our series Caves, but we... Uh, we want to look at it again today, kind of a fresh look at it. And for those of you who may not know, this is the story of Lazarus. And spoiler alert, it ends with Jesus bringing Lazarus back from the dead. And uh, I'm kind of ruining the ending for you for, for a reason. Um, you, you, you'll figure it out. But there's, there's a ton of stuff going on in this chapter. But what I want to do today is I want to look at several different phrases from this narrative that I believe God wants to use this morning to show us something about what it truly means to trust in him. And so we'll start in John chapter 11, verse 1. In the New Living Translation, it says, A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick, so the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. That's the first phrase I want us to look at this morning. So although. So although Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. I, I want to start out by addressing this idea. I think that sometimes we pray for things. We ask God for things. We, we expect that God's going to do the things that we want him to do. Or we figure out this is what's su supposed to happen. And then it doesn't happen. And we begin to feel like God's not really moving or, 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 or acting in our lives. And, and, and we say, well, why didn't it happen the way that it's supposed to? And we can, we can even kind of convince ourselves that God's inaction is uh, a symbol of his disinterest. And we, we begin to think like, well, if he didn't do what I asked him to do, then he must not really love me or he must not really care about me. But I just need you to, to read this, this, this phrase again. So although 
Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. He stayed where he was for two days. So although we've been asking for a specific answer to prayer, Jesus knows what we really need. And so that means he may not give us what we want when we want it in the way we thought we should get it. But it absolutely does not mean that he doesn't love us or care about us or isn't paying attention to our prayers. So so although he loved them, he stayed for two more days. And then we jump to verse 17 and we understand why those two days were so significant. Verse 17 says, when Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Now, in our sense, that's like, okay, well, he stayed two days. He's been dead four days. What's the big deal? But you need to understand that in the in the Jewish culture at that time, there was this superstition that for the first three days after death, the soul would hover near the body, hoping to be reunited um, and and be brought back to life. It sounds kind of weird to us now, but at that time, it was a very real possibility for the first three days after death that the soul could be reunited with the body. And so here comes Jesus strolling in on the fourth day when all hope is lost. At this moment, the grief really kicks in because for the first three days, there was a little bit of a possibility and now there's nothing. The, whole, the entire situation is hopeless. And so here's Mary and Martha and they were told that the sickness wouldn't end in death, but their brother is dead just the same. This is rock bottom for them. And, at that, and up to that point, Jesus had been nowhere to be found. They, they may have felt like Jesus had abandoned them, but in reality, he showed up when they needed him most. They may have felt like they had nowhere else to turn, but in their hour of greatest need, here comes Jesus. They were, they, they, the whole time they were waiting and wondering and wishing for what could have been, Jesus was on his way to do the miracle they needed. Some of us are here today and We feel like we're at our lowest point. It feels like Jesus is nowhere to be seen. It feels like we've been forgotten or abandoned, like nobody sees or cares about our struggle. But I'm here to tell you that at just the right time, exactly when you need him most, Jesus will reveal himself to you and remind you that he was with you all along. Your situation may feel hopeless and unbearable, but Jesus is on the way to do a miracle. It may not be the miracle you asked for, and it may not look the way you think it should, but he's on the way to give you the miracle that you need. And so Jesus shows up in Bethany after having in in the minds of Mary and Martha wasted two days, and now it's the fourth day, and he's too late. The situation is hopeless. Their grief has never been greater and many people have come from nearby Jerusalem to mourn with them. But we see in verse 20, when Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Remember that for later. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. That's the second phrase I want us to look at this morning, if only. 
So Martha, she comes running out of the house and her, her exclamation is, Lord, if only you had been here. She makes it very clear that Jesus did not meet the expectations she had placed upon him. He did not meet her desires. He didn't do what she wanted him to do. She didn't do he didn't do what she thought he should do. He didn't do what she believed that he could do. If only you had been here. If only you had done things the way that I wanted you to do them. If only you had answered the prayers for the thing that I said that I thought I needed. If only you had acted according to my timeline. If only you had done things my way. But Martha, even in the face of her questions, adds a qualifier saying, but even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. This is a very clear statement of faith, but it may not be the kind of faith statement that it appears to be on the surface. While there's some debate amongst theologians, many believe that Martha here is stating that she has, not that she believes that Jesus will raise her brother to life, but rather that she has chosen to continue to believe in him despite her disappointment. What I mean is she's not saying even now that my brother has been dead for four days, I still believe you're going to bring him back to life. As much as she's saying even now that my brother has been dead for four days and you're too late and all hope is lost, I still believe in you. I still choose to trust you. It's a powerful declaration and it requires significant faith. I still believe you even though this isn't what I wanted. It's no easy task and yet Martha accomplishes this despite her grief. It's not easy to find yourself in the middle of unfulfilled hopes and broken dreams and say to Jesus, I will still put my trust in you. It's not easy to find yourself in the middle of a failing marriage or messed up finances or poor health or a life that just doesn't look the way you thought it would and say to Jesus, I'm going to trust you anyway. But notice two things here about this situation. First, the presence of faith does not mean the absence of question. Martha says, even now I I believe, but she also says, if only. Just because she's chosen to continue trusting Jesus doesn't mean that she's happy with the way that he's chosen to do things. It doesn't mean that she understands the way that he's chosen to do things. It doesn't mean that she doesn't have questions or doubts about why this is happening to her. In fact, the if only is what makes the even now so significant. There's a tension between faith and doubt, between even now and if only, that each of us will spend the majority of our, of our time following Jesus navigating through this tension. But second, notice that Jesus does not rebuke Martha for her if only statement. He doesn't say, how dare you question me? Instead, he offers her encouragement. In verse 23, Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. She thinks that Jesus is kind of offering her the same, well, you'll see him again, kind of condolences that we so often hear, but he's, he's got something bigger in mind. He says, I I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. So Jesus offers 
Martha a promise that will, her brother will rise again, but she still doesn't fully understand it. He continues saying, I am the resurrection and the life. But even as she expresses her belief that Jesus is the Messiah, she still doesn't quite understand what she's saying. Her faith has not yet reached the level of hopeful expectation. See, there's a difference between expecting things from God or of God and living a life of hopeful expectation. When we expect things of God, we're telling him what he needs to give us. And when he doesn't meet those expectations, we leave disappointed or dejected. When we choose to live a life of hopeful expectation, we're believing that God will show up not the way we want him to, but the way that we need him to according to his plan for our lives. When Martha says, if only you had been here, she expresses faith in what Jesus could have done. When she says, even now I know, she expresses faith in what Jesus can do. But even as she proclaims her belief that he is indeed the Messiah, she stops short of expressing belief in what he will do. As I was studying this text this week, God hit me over the head with this idea like a hammer because it's something that I personally have been walking through the last few weeks. He said, to me, we have no problem making if only statements, believing that God could have done something to intervene in our situation. Many of us can even find faith to make even now statements, believing that God still can do something in our situation, even though it hasn't turned out the way we thought it would. But how many of us are willing to live with the kind of hopeful expectation that God will do something in our situation and use it for his glory? So here's Martha staring in the face of Jesus as he says, your brother will rise again. I know this because I am the resurrection. And her response is to say, yeah, but you, you mean that metaphorically. I, I, I get it, Jesus. We're, we're on the same wavelength. You're not actually going to bring him back from life because how, it would be crazy for me to even hope for something like that. How many blessings from God have we missed out on because we weren't willing to live with hopeful expectation of what he wanted to do? How many times has God had something for us, but because we're not willing to put our hope in him and believe that it will happen, we miss out on it? We get angry that God could have. We believe that he can, but are we hopefully expecting that he will? God, if only you had showed up in my situation like you could have, expresses a different kind of belief from God. Even now, I believe that you can show up in my situation, which even still expresses a different kind of belief from God. I'm going to live every day looking forward with hopeful expectation toward the moment that you will show up in my situation. Friends, what's the point in believing that he could have if we're unwilling to believe that he will? While it's incredibly important to believe that he can, don't stop there. Put your hope in what he will do. There's no reason to be upset about what we believe God could have done if we're not willing to believe in what he can can do and look forward to what he will do. But far too often the pain and the problems of life 
break us down so badly that we're not only unable to put our hope in what God will do, but we become unsure even of what he can do. The questions get so big and the doubt looms so large, we find ourselves like Mary. We can't even leave the house to go out and meet Jesus. We're just sitting there overwhelmed. Our struggles have rendered us immobile, not only unsure of what we believe, but unable to move forward in any direction. We've become, we have become paralyzed by our pain and overcome by our emotion. And finally, when, when Martha goes into the house to tell her sister Mary that Jesus is asking for her, look at her response in verse 32. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here. My brother would not have died. It's the exact same if only statement that her sister Martha made, but at the same time, it's entirely different. She doesn't tack on an even now or even a how could you. She just falls at his feet, hopeless and defeated. And yet, even in her hopelessness, there's faith in that if only statement. It may not be strong faith. It may not be faith that moves her forward, but it's faith enough to believe that there was hope. And if there was hope, church, then there can be hope again. And as she's sitting there in that moment, Jesus is watching her kneel at his feet. It's someone he cares deeply about. She's crying. She's overwhelmed by the pain of death and loss. And Jesus becomes angry. Verse 33 says that when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Your version may say that he was deeply moved in spirit or that he groaned in the spirit. But no matter how we translate this term, it means that he was seized with an intense mix of emotions, the strongest of which was anger. But Jesus wasn't angry at Mary for experiencing the pain uh, and grief of loss. He wasn't angry at Martha for not fully understanding what he was trying to say to her. He wasn't angry at the mourners for trying to console the sisters and sharing in their grief. He certainly wasn't angry at himself for his delayed arrival when the Greek word that John uses to describe what Jesus was feeling is very complex. The most accurate way to explain it is that Jesus was angry and troubled at the destruction and power of the great enemy of humanity, death and darkness. This is Jesus, co-creator of the world, looking down at one of his beloved, weeping at his feet and thinking to himself, this is not the way this was supposed to be. This is not our plan. Death was never supposed to have this much power. Darkness was never meant to encompass the world in this way. He looks at Mary and he sees her. He understands her brokenness and it affects him deeply. Verse 35 tells us Jesus wept. But these weren't tears of grief for Lazarus, Lazarus because Jesus knew full well that in just a few minutes he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. These were tears of compassion. Tears of sympathy, tears that proved he understood exactly what Mary and Martha were going through. 
And it broke his heart to know that they had to experience it. He was angry because he knew that they were experiencing this pain because of sin and death. And he knew that he had come to earth to overcome those things and make a better way. I believe there's somebody here today, you have begun to feel invisible to God. Everything you're going through, all your pain and all your problems, your anxiety, your stress. It's become so much you feel like nobody even sees you. But this morning, I want you to know that Jesus sees you and he loves you. Whatever you're going through, whatever your if only is, after all those hours you've spent paralyzed by pain and crying secret tears, he sees you. He knows what you're going through. He understands your pain and he wants to do something about it. He wants you to know that there is a better way. He is a better way. He has already won the victory over sin and death and darkness. Your broken hopes and dreams will rise again if only you are willing to put your trust back in him. I also want you to know this morning that God will use your pain for a purpose. Our world is so broken that pain is inevitable. Sometimes, like in this story, pain is part of God's plan and it's there to to, to test us and stretch us and grow us or to bring him glory. But there's other times our pain is the result of things that are completely outside of God's will, whether it's choices that we've made or actions that others have taken against us. But while not all pain is part of God's plan, all pain can and will be used for God's purpose. You hear Pastor Mark say it all the time, but God can take your mess and turn it into a message. He can take your test and turn it into a testimony. God can take your pain and turn it into your platform. He can take your if only and turn it into a but God. But know this morning that he sees you. You are not alone. You are not invisible. He knows what you're going through, and he's on the way to comfort you. So they take Jesus to the tomb where Lazarus has been buried. He's still angry and indignant, upset with the pain and anguish that sin and death have caused, and now he's ready to do something about it. He says in verse 39, roll the stone aside. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. In the NIV, Martha says, but Lord, by this time there's a bad odor. And that's the next phrase I want us to look at this morning. But Lord, because see, here we have the same Martha to whom Jesus said moments earlier, your brother will rise again. This is the same Martha who said, but even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. This is the same Martha who, along with her sister, had so desperately wished for Jesus to come and do a miracle for her brother. And now, as Jesus is on the brink of doing exactly that, she says, but Lord, no, no, not this way. This isn't the way you're supposed to do the the thing that I asked you to do. Instead of getting excited and beginning to put her hope in what Jesus will do, she reminds him of the hopelessness of her situation. But Lord, do you really understand how 
big my problem is. But Lord, do you really understand how deep my hurt is? But Lord, do you really understand how messed up my life is? Before we judge her, though, how often have we done the same thing? How often do we resist recovery if it means that our struggles will be exposed? How often do we object to God's commands because they don't we don't understand them, they don't make sense to us? How often are we unwilling to roll away the stone and give Jesus space to work a miracle because we don't want people to know just how stinky our situation is? But in verse 40, Jesus replies with another phrase I want us to look at. He says to Martha, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? Jesus doesn't need us to have faith in order to do a miracle. He is all powerful. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, not I will reveal my glory if you believe. You will see my glory if you believe. I'm about to do a miracle. You're going to see Lazarus come back to life. That's going to happen whether you believe in me or not. But if you want to see my glory, you've got to believe. If we want to see his glory, if we want more than a miracle, if we want the life change that accompanies the miraculous, we have to first believe that it is possible. We have to choose to live with the kind of hopeful expectation that risks disappointment. Verse 41 says, so they rolled the stone aside. In doing this, Mary and Martha chose to look past their if-onlys and put their hope in Jesus they exposed the stench of their situation and took a tremendous risk. Think with me for a moment about the social and emotional ramifications if Jesus let them down. They'd be a laughing stock. Their grief would be exponentially greater than it already was. All of that is why it's harder to have faith in what Jesus will do than in what he could have done or even in what he can do. If we focus only on the if-onlys of life or acknowledge the even-nows, we can have faith without risk. Like we said, each of these statements demonstrates a level of faith. If-only tells us we believe that God could have done something. Even-now tells us that we believe that God can do something. But neither of those levels of faith require risk. The risk comes when we live our lives as though he will do the thing that he said he would do. And what we risk is disappointment. There's always a voice in the back of our minds, even as we know what God could have done, even as we believe in what he can do, as we try to step into the belief of what he will do, there's a, a voice in the back of our heads that says, what if he doesn't? And that's the risk of hopeful expectation. We were created to live in hopeful expectations, to roll away the stones and lay it all on the line, to go all in saying, I believe in you, Jesus, not just that you could have done things the way I wanted, not just that you can do something eventually, but that you will show up in my situation right now at the hour of my greatest need. I'm going to put my faith and my hope and my trust in you that you will do what you said you'd do. If you want breakthrough, you have to roll away the stone. 
If you want restoration, you have to roll away the stone. If you want healing or peace or redemption or whatever it is you might need in this moment, you've got to take the risk and roll away the stone and not only believe that God can show up in your situation, but hope and trust and expect that he will. So in hopeful expectation, they rolled the stone aside. Laid it all on the line and said, you better know what you're doing, bro. Jesus prays to the Father, thanking God for hearing him. And in verse 43, he shouts, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. (laughs) Don't you love how God treats the miraculous as commonplace? And the dead man came out. That's like, and Ian ate breakfast. I do that all the time, bud. What? I am the resurrection. What you talking about? That's what Jesus is saying. And the dead man came out. Your problem ain't nothing to him. It feels insurmountable to us. It feels like no one's ever hurt as much as we have. It feels like no one's ever been through the situations that we've, we're going through. It feels hopeless and helpless, and we don't know where we're going to turn. And the dead man came out. Ain't no thing but a chicken wing. The dead man came out. Just like that, they've got their miracle. Jesus didn't meet their expectations. He he didn't meet the expectations that they had placed on him by doing what they wanted. Instead, he fulfilled their hopeful expectation by giving them exactly what they needed, a resurrection. He didn't meet the expectations they placed on him for healing a sickness. He, He rose above that and rewarded their hopeful expectation by giving them a resurrection. In that, in that one act, he fulfilled their hope and validated their faithfulness, proving once again that when it comes to trusting Jesus, the reward is always greater than the risk. Whether or not things happen the way that we hope they would or according to the timeline that we hope they would, the reward is always greater than the risk. Whether or not our breakthrough comes in this life or the next, the reward is always greater than the risk. Whether our miracle happens instantaneously right now or 20 years later, the reward is always greater than the risk. But as we close this morning, I want to show you one more thing. As the people who witnessed Lazarus' resurrection celebrated the word begins to spread and the word reaches the pharisees who were the religious leaders who had been opposed to jesus for some time and in that moment when they received that message uh uh-oh he can bring people back to life now we got to do something about this something shifted they called a meeting of the high council and verse 53 tells us that from that time on the jewish leaders began to plot jesus's death The resurrection of Lazarus was the catalyst that set in motion the entirety of God's plan to save the world. So although he loved them, he stayed where he was for two more days. He knew what he was doing. He knew that there had to be no doubt. It had to be the fourth day. There had to be no doubt that the resurrection was a miracle from God, not that some floating soul hovered back into the body by accident. 
He had a purpose for their pain. He knew what he was doing. Remember, verse 4, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. There's nowhere in there that says Lazarus' sickness will not include death. It will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. He knew from that moment that Lazarus had to die so that he could bring him back to life. He had to bring Lazarus back to life so that the opposition of the Pharisees would move to action. The Pharisees had to be moved to action so that he would, so that Jesus would be betrayed, arrested, and crucified unto death. And Jesus had to die so that he himself could rise again, winning once and forever the victory over the same death and darkness that drove him to compassion in Lazarus' tomb. Jesus knew before it ever happened how Lazarus' story would end. And he knows the end of your story too. Remember the the words to Martha in verse 40. Didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? Stay on your feet. Your, your, Your story doesn't have to end in darkness or frustration, or pain, or disbelief. Your life may be filled with if-onlys from all the time that Jesus didn't do the things you thought that he should do, but that doesn't mean that we can stop expecting things from him. We can look past our grief and our pain, get off of our knees and say, even now I believe that you not only can resurrect my hopeless situation, but I believe that in some way, at some point, no matter how it looks, no matter when it happens, at just the right time, You will show up in my life and give me not the miracle I asked for, but the miracle I need. 